Chris is a uh, wonderful storyteller, harp player, penny whistle, uh, Boron. He's been concentrating on the harp lately. He's also a harp maker. Uh, it's a uh, great pleasure to bring him back. Would you please welcome Chris Caswell? So I've got to tune this. I haven't tuned it yet, um, but it only takes about 15, 17 minutes. So uh, enjoy yourselves. Uh, I actually like tuning. I don't get tired of it, which is actually a good thing, considering what I play. <clears throat> Welcome to Sebastopol City Limits. I'm Dale Doherty. That was the opening night of 2009 Sebastopol Celtic Music Festival with Cloud Moss introducing harpist Chris Caswell. My guest today is Cloud Moss. He's the event producer and music promoter who organized the Sebastopol Celtic Music Festival as well as the Kate Wolf Music Festival. We'll learn how these incredible musical events started, but first, I want to share the story of how Claude Moss got his name. My given name is Brad, and Moss is my last name. The name Cloud was bestowed upon me by a Welsh gypsy who, this is back in 1970, I think maybe 1978, I think somewhere around there. I used to live on a thousand acre parcel, five miles outside of Boonville. And on part of that parcel up above, I was down closer to the road and there used to be more traffic through the house and part of the property where I live. So we used to be more involved with people coming and going. Up above was somebody I knew named Jackson Crazy Wolves. He was a Welshman and his wife, Osha, lived on top of the mountain where it used to be a place called Compost College. Compost College was used by Mendocino, no, excuse me, a College of the Redwoods as an adjunct to teach people gardening. There was a big wiki up and so forth. It was abandoned and Crazy Wolf and Osha lived up there. They'd come and go between there and the coast, Mendocino, where I first met them. I used to hike up there quite a bit and talk to them. And he always used to call me bro. And also I traveled quite a bit. And because my name was Brad, in a lot of different languages in different countries, it sounded to people like bread. So I was called anything from pawn in Mexico to Lethem in Israel to Brud in Denmark. Everywhere I went in that language, I was called bread. So anyway, one day, Crazy Wolf said to me, and he lived very much like a Native American to the point where he once killed a buck barehanded by grabbing its antlers and 
breaking its neck. Anyway, we were standing, the three of us in a garden, there were cumulus nimbus clouds going by, all the shapes that you could see. And he said, if we don't get a name for you, we're just, you're just going to be pro. Then he stuck out his palm and he looked at his wife, O'Shea, and he said, you know what? I got it. He's just like those passing clouds up there. He always brings us the news and tells us what's going on down closer to town and so forth. And he's just like all those changing clouds up there. We're going to call him passing cloud. And I, after too many jokes about PC and passing gas, people just started calling me cloud. That's a wonderful story. And it sucked. And I was Cloud Moss. I think one of the biggest kicks I got out of this over the years, too. One, when I first started becoming a promoter and dealing with national acts, call agents, and they'd say, yeah, can I say who's calling? I'd say Cloud Moss. And they'd go, they couldn't get it. I had to really get my foot in the door to, to talk to people who were dealing with national acts. But when they found out I was very detailed, that changed. But the funniest thing that ever happened was you recall when we used to have the morning show on channel 50 around here for many years, they wanted to interview me one year for the Celtic festival. So they had me go over to Montgomery high school early in the morning. We used to have the games as well during that time in the early days. So I got a woman cable tosser who came out and she was wearing a kilt and so forth. And she was in the background doing the cable tossing. And I had to be there an hour early. And the guy who was interviewing me was the weatherman. And it was a, one of those bands with the remote antenna. So we're, and he kept walking around practicing my name for the whole hour. He kept walking around in between when he was on the set going loud moss. We get on live. He gets on live. He goes, I'm here with the bureau of the Sebastopol Celtic Music Festival, Claude Mouse. For years, we used to make buttons for the Celtic Festival that everybody used to wear. And they made me a button that said C-L-O-D. Let's start somewhat at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, a place called Sun Valley, not Idaho. And I used to cruise Van Nuys Boulevard as a kid in the high school. Were you a musician growing up? I was not, although I had musical components of people in my family. I had a couple of concert master violinists and so forth, but I was not myself a musician. I was more of a athlete and a history buff. Really? And I did creative writing. Actually, when I was younger, what I wanted to do was I wanted to become a poetry professor. <laughs> really? Yeah. I actually had a poetry class in my high school. I always really enjoyed poetry. I enjoyed history. And like I said, I was rather athletic and back in the day when we were all younger. And what was your sport? I played baseball for about seven years or eight years as a youngster. But in high school, I played some basketball and I also was on the swim team until I got very sick of swimming and chlorine. So how does your path take you to what you end up doing? How did you make the connections between that as a high school kid to get involved as a producer of events and such. I worked in high school, saved my money. Two days out of high school, I flew with a friend to Switzerland on an open-ended trip, I think it was. Anyway, he went for three months and I ended up staying for a year and a half. I lived around Europe and the Middle East and I just traveled around and got odd jobs and things like that. I was accepted while I was gone to Sonoma State and Santa Barbara to philosophy major and a religious studies major. And the two okay. different schools. 
I decided not to come back at the time. I felt like I was learning more just being on the road and taking care of myself. And I didn't go to school for about nine years. I started really playing when I lived up in Mendocino County outside of Boonville. And I first started drumming and I actually practiced a lot on oil drums. Used them like kungas. Not a great thing for one's body. But I ended up studying at Ali Akbar Khan School of Music in Marin. I studied tabla. I studied the Darabuka Dumbek. I also went to Sonoma State. I studied silver flute, open hole flute. I naturally progressed to being able to play rhythm and then learn from some great masters. And then for some particular reason, I grew up in a family that loved music. I just was not, I was not a musician and nobody immediately around me was. I became a dance accompanist at Sonoma State. So I worked in the dance department. What happened was I developed chronic tendonitis because I was playing so much and I had developed some bad habits. It's important actually to keep breathing, I discovered, especially when you're using your body a lot. And I did not. So I was very good. I was intricate, but I was not doing things that were smart in terms of the long run. So I got chronic tendonitis. I didn't want to leave the world of talented musicians and craftspeople that I was around. And the first event I actually did, I don't remember the year. It was quite a long time ago. I lived up on Star Mountain for nine years, which is on top of Coleman Valley Road, just west mm. of Wheeler yeah. Ranch. And it used to be owned by Moses Moon, who's since passed. And Moses used to run the Gate of Horn in Chicago, a famous folk club. I did at the Veterans Hall, which is now the right. Center of the Arts, put together a weekend festival. The beneficiary was CARE the outfit care for a mother's clinic in Mali hmm. for nursing mothers and so forth. So it was an African-themed festival and that got my feet a little wet on it. I threw events and parties and things like that out at the ranch. Every once in a while, you fall into something that you realize you've got a knack for. So I tended to have a knack for it. And then when, I guess when my kids were young, very young, I'd say about 32 years ago or 33 years. I got a job. One of my jobs, I had a few different jobs, was working at Copperfields. And I helped develop their music section at the bookstore. And then when they opened up Copperfields Music, I, along with Al, who he managed, I assistant managed, we ran Copperfields Music. I put together at the time a very extensive Celtic music section that I curated because I was steeped quite a bit also in Celtic music and Indian, oddly enough, Indian music brought me to Celtic music. I really appreciated not only the musicality of it, but I appreciated the pathos, the ballads and things of that nature. So I had people coming from far and wide coming to just see this particular selection if they were into Celtic music. That was on Main Street, wasn't it? It was right next door to Copperfields on the north side. And so what happened was, trying to think what happened, there was the flood. The flood in 90, festival started in 95. I guess it was 94, 95, somewhere in there. There was the, the flood and the community center had taken about five feet of water, mud. They had just put in a new floor, wood floor. It was completely destroyed. And on top of it, the city council at the time pulled the funds that they had usually earmarked for the center. And Kim Caruso was the uh, head of the center. And I met with, I had a good friend at the time, Steve Lamiras, who was Scottish and Chris Caswell, 
And between the three of us, we were just chatting one day and Al, who was working at the Copperfields Music, and we were joking about Woodstock. I wonder how Woodstock started and blah, 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 blah. And that led to us deciding, why don't we try to throw a Celtic festival? And I had a meeting with Kim, Steve and I did, and asked if she would be interested and we would do it completely as a benefit for the community center. So the timing was very apropos to had a need. Yeah, there was a need. And then I had what coincided with that was because I had this extensive Celtic collection at the Copperfields Music, one of the people who was a distributor was also trying to get gigs for the old blind dogs out of Scotland. And this was in March. And it was during the time where in San Francisco, there used to be this, the San Francisco Irish Music Festival in Fort Mason. And so they were looking for some extra gigs. So as a favor, I said, I would do it. And it was not something I was even thinking of doing at the time, but I said I would do it. We threw an event at Jasper's. Chip Dunbar did the sound for me and we had, I don't know, 150 people or something. And we just, we were surprised and we packed a bunch of people in. Then after that, Patrick Ball, if you remember Patrick, Celtic heart player, lived around here for many years. Patrick took me down to Berkeley to the old freight salvage. He said, I want you to see this Irish fiddler named Martin Hayes. And I went and saw Martin Hayes, who at the time was playing with Randall Bays on guitar. Not That was right before he played with Dennis Gale. And I went down and Martin and I, we went to a bar afterwards. And uh, I started chatting with Martin. I said, would you be interested in coming to Sebastopol for a Celtic festival? He was interested. I contacted the old blind dogs. I said, would you be interested? They were interested. And so the Celtic festival was born at the end of September. And then to juice everything up at the end of August, I was asked again by the same person who had asked me to help put a concert together for the old black dogs to put together a, a concert for a group called After Hours that came out of Ireland and England. I put that together and there were so many people that came to that. I think we were somewhere around 220 and Bill DeCarly, who was running the bar back then and still is around here, Bill looked at me and said, Cloud, you've got to stop letting people in. They were literally climbing the front window of Jasper's. Mm. So it was hugely successful. Was that a surprise to you? Yeah. Yeah, it was. And we did the Celtic Festival, which was a huge success on all levels. The participants, the performers, the funds that were raised for the community center. I then talked to Kim and I made an arrangement with Kim to do concerts at the community center. The arrangement was a mutually beneficial one where I gave half of all proceeds to the community center that would be in the black. In return, they helped cover insurance and would stand behind if there were losses. It just turned out that the first dozen events that I put on were all amazingly in the black. Some of them hugely in the black because the January after the first Celtic festival, I brought Arlo Guthrie to town two nights in a row. And that was sold out off the charts at the community center. And again, people were just over the moon that Arlo Guthrie was in Sebastopol. Sebastopol did not have a reputation as a music destination before then, did it? Oh, the first years that I was doing this, the common comment or complaint locally just geographically, which would include Santa Rosa, was that people felt they had to go down to the Bay Area to enjoy the quality of 
music or entertainment or opera or anything that they wanted. They had to go there. Of course, that's dramatically changed over the years, but that was the landscape that I was working with at the time. And so we were off and running basically. And then because there were so many fortunate successes in these first concerts, one day, Raleigh Atkinson walked down from Sebastopol Times and News, which was stationed just down the street in those days. And Raleigh come into the music store regularly anyway. And he chided me and he said, why don't you do something for KRCB? They need something. And you've been doing this other stuff, but it's been very successful. And at the time, Chris Caswell and I had a show together on KRCB, which we had for some years called Pacific Gale. But so Raleigh, he's the one that got the ball rolling for me to start thinking about, okay, what could I do for KRCB? And that's where the Kate Wolf Music Festival came from, which was originally going to be a one-day, one-time only, it was called Kate Wolf Retrospective, which was a... a a benefit strictly for KRCB. And what I did was Chris talked to his folks and we went out and did it on their property, which mm -hmm. used to have the red, white, bluegrass festivals around July 4th for about five years. So they had an amphitheater on a slope with a with decaying stage. We fixed it all up, put money into it, put money into the electrical. And we put this together. I got a lot of Kate's old friends. I called Utah Phillips. I called Don Coffin, who was one of Kate's husbands and the, the head of the Wildland Flower of her original band. And I called Nina Group and they said, okay, yeah, if you got this idea and you can run with it, get the logistics straight, we'll be in on it. So again, that was beyond expectation. Where was that? That was 96. So the Celtic Festival started 95 September. Kate Wolf Music Festival started 96 June. Why Kate Wolf? Did you have a connection to her? I knew Kate Wolf. I would not claim to have been a good friend of Kate Wolf's, but I was an acquaintance. And she lived here in town? Actually, yeah. What was interesting is that Kate also used to work at Sebastopol Times and News. So that was parting. I think parting what had happened in my thinking, Raleigh and I talked and Kate used to work there, but also um, Kate used to do things around the county. For example, like out in Bodega, put a festival together, get a flatbed truck make that the stage, get people together. And she used to bring community together for music. I just started talking to people and the idea came from, at that time, the Sonoma County Oak Festival, which had been going, I believe about 10 years, was on its last breath. Kate helped start it. And also I should say that when we lived at Star Mountain, Lori and I sponsored, I guess I could say, we sponsored a peyote circle for Kate to heal her with the Native Americans, Robert Greenway and so forth, and a teepee when she was sick with leukemia. So we helped do that. So there was a memory and a connection there. We did not partake in it because we had our, Shauna was baby at that point. We just set it up. Anyway, I talked to people and realized the folk festival was on its last legs and nobody had ever done anything to honor Kate's memory specifically. So I thought, okay, let's try this. Also, Chris Caswell, he played with me. He used to play with Robin Williams from the Incredible String Band, and they wrote the song Pacheco, which was connected with Red Tail Hawk. So that's how that started. And it spent five years at Caswell Vineyards until they wanted to more vineyards in where we parked cars. And then I had to find another star. Wavy Gravy, who was Kate's personal clown, 
and good friend when she was going through her leukemia really encouraged me. I looked everywhere from Oakland. It turned out all the way up to Laytonville and Wavy insisted I go up to the ranch, the hog farm and Black Oak Ranch in Laytonville. He said, Kate would love it here. She rode in the rodeo day parade up there. Please come and check it out. So I came and checked it out. My longtime sound man, Mike Bendinelli, and met Bob Barsotti, who was used to be Bill Graham's right-hand man who lived up there. And the rest, as they say, is history. We hit it off, moved the festival up there. Bob and I actually became partners. And we retired it this year. And the Celtic Festival was retired. When was that retired? Back in 10 or 11. And that was retired not by choice, at least my choice. It was retired by a incoming new board and a new director at the time. And they decided they wanted to go in a different direction. So that was pulled like a month after the last festival without much input. And the Kate Wolf Music Festival, after a two-year hiatus with COVID, we decided we wanted to uh, go out on our own terms while we still had the opportunity and we threw our farewell festival. That was last year? Yeah. So those are pretty good days. Those were great festivals they have here. We're very fortunate. I have a lot of good memories. And now that I've basically retired, I can actually put my mind to enjoying some of those memories. I have a library full of board tapes and lots of friends through the years. And hopefully we'll still get to see a bunch of them with some very artistic friends. And I'm hopeful that there will be new, younger people bringing on things that community will embrace that will also be community builders. People are really interested in getting out attending live events again and hearing music. We're fortunate. I think we were a little bit of an anomaly this last year. I know a lot of events did struggle, but we sold out four months in advance and had a clamor of hundreds trying to get tickets. But to be honest with you, we attribute that mostly to the fact that we had announced it was our farewell festival. We built 24 years worth of people coming to the festival and loving it. And they didn't want to miss the last one. So a lot of people came out of the wood. I don't think if it were the farewell festival, we would have had that kind of turnout. What kind of advice would you give to the next generation of producers or organizers? Just grab whatever's valuable and run in the other direction. Let me guess that you probably got into it, not knowing fully what it would take to do it all. And you had to figure it out as you went. It would be a very hard sell to people if they knew what they were up against and if they understood the limitations of the economics of doing this, either how stressful it can be doing it with very few people, trying to pull off all of the different jobs that it entails, how strenuous that is in terms of hours and focus, or how difficult it is to keep the economics as solvent as you want year after year if you have a big crew that needs to be consistently paid and given recognition and raises and so forth along the way. And the fact that expenses in the fields of play, which are performers and travel costs and infrastructure costs, those don't tend to go down. Those tend to go up. What I discovered is it's easier to come up with a new idea and put that idea into practice initially. What's much harder is to stay true to that idea and ethos 
and keep it going. Keep the main crux and kernel of what you were doing solid and have it continue to grow and grow and last over time. It's a different thing to manage than it is to create. What I've always said to people that want to get into it is make sure that you yourself and anybody around you that is going to be involved is willing to come through on the downside, not just the upside, because in my experience, when people get together and are discussing putting things together, whether it's a board or a committee or whatever it is, everybody likes to talk about just how great it's going to be, just how wonderful the idea is, how it's going to be solid and so forth. And I'm more of a realist and experience has borne that out for me. It's not as simple as just saying, isn't this a wonderful idea? We're just going to have success. You have to look at all ends of it. And then you have to be around people who are willing to come forth if it doesn't go the way you want. And then if it doesn't go the way you want, you really want to do this. Kim and I certainly had our setbacks. But what I discovered working together with Kim is when we had our setbacks, we just tightened our belts. And I could not have done what I had done without having the symbiotic relationship that I had with Kim. I owe a great deal to her innovativeness, her ability to get so many people in the community just wanting to help out, wanting to be part of everything. She was very infectious that way. She was full of positive energy, full of stick to and get it done. And like I yeah. say, if you ran into some brick walls or some pitfalls, Kim was the first one to get up and say, okay, we're just going to work harder and get through it. I have nothing but a lot of admiration for Kim and she's still a good friend to this day. The interesting thing about events is, especially the people who attend them, they are very happy when it all goes well. They have no idea what it takes to put them on. And the people like you that work behind the scenes are invisible to them, but they make well, all the what, difference to the world, both to the performers and to the guests that are there. And to me, a truly successful event has to do with all components. That means that the venue, the community, the backers, the attendees, the performers, the volunteers, the staff, you want to have everybody coming to you with smiles on their faces and feeling positive. If any one or two of those are not happy, then the success isn't truly successful in my eyes. Well, that's why it takes a lot of work to make sure you're touching all the bases properly. Yeah. Let's leave it at that. That's a good place to get to. I appreciate all the work you've done over the years. Back at you. We will go out with some music from the Sebastopol Celtic Festival. This is Dervish and Vassen together doing Josephine's Waltz. <laughs> 